a listener production. Okay, are you recording? G'day, I hope the sun is shining on you wherever you are listening right now and that if you're in lockdown like me, you are hanging in there doing your best to stay positive, which is not always easy at the moment, and that you are back living a more normal life really, really soon. Welcome along to episode 136 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring an athlete that gave many of us a real lift at the Tokyo Olympic Games, slalom canoeist Jessica Fox. She did the double in 2014. Can she manage that today? Well, she's smashed the time. 109.07. What a Jessica season. Fox is outstanding. And by the way, if you missed our new podcast, the Howie Games Artist Series that launched last week with singer-songwriter Paul Kelly, please do me a huge favour if you've got the time and go and check it out. Basically, it's your favourite creative types, singers, actors, podcasters, authors, TV stars, movie stars, rock stars, talking about sport and their journey to stardom. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Now, Jess has competed at three Olympics and is recognised as the GOAT of her sport, which is truly incredible because she is just 27 years of age. But this isn't simply the story of an athlete who just goes out and blows the competition away, bang. Rather, a tale of how Jess had to overcome what she describes as the toughest two days of her life to achieve the ultimate. Courtesy of Red Bull, enjoy the story of an athlete that is never beaten, Jessica Fox. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games, a lady that lit up our screens at the Tokyo Olympics. There were people cheering in their lounge rooms all across the country. Gave us all a massive lift in what's been a difficult time for a lot of people here in Australia. She's over in Spain at the moment. I can see her smiling face on the other side of the world. Jessica Fox, welcome to the Howie Games. Myself and my kids are genuinely pumped to have you on the show. Thanks for your time. How are you going? Thank you. I'm thrilled to be on the show um, and I'm looking forward to to the questions from you and your kids. Ah, you know about the kids' questions. Are you aware of the podcast? That fills me with joy. (laughs) Yes, I have listened to it um, quite a few times, but I have to say the internet hasn't been great and uh, downloading things hasn't been easy sometimes, but uh, I I definitely have a lot of podcasts to catch up on for when I'm home in quarantine, I think. (laughs) Well, I'm pumped, you know, about the show. When are you coming home? Uh, I saw Paddy Mills recently. He got out of quarantine. He was sharing his medal. At some stage, I guess you must be bursting to get home, but then obviously you're still competing, so you've got to continue. Yeah, we've got the World Championships. Uh, They'll be at the end of September and then hopefully mid-October. Around then I'll come home, but, yeah, it's still a little bit uncertain around, you know, flights and availability and that sort of thing, so we'll see. I have so many questions for you. The first one that's popped into my head, are you the queen of excess luggage? How do you get those canoes around the place? (laughs) 
Oh, it's such a mission. Um, is it? I bet it is. Oh, yeah. I think, like, it must be so nice to be a swimmer and just have to pack, you know, some goggles and, <laughs> and swimmers and caps and, you know, maybe the flippers are the biggest thing that you pack. But for us, <laughs> the um, the kayaks are uh, three and a half metres long and they weigh nine to ten kilos all packed up. So it is a bit of a challenge getting them on flats and not all airlines accept them. Um, usually we have to book them on as, as excess and oversized luggage. Um, so, yeah, then when you've got a sort of 23 kilo or 30 kilo baggage limit with that includes your kayaks and all the gear that you have to take for a few months, we're, we're pretty good at packing light. <laughs> so what is day-to-day life for you like in Europe at the moment? Look, it's pretty... It's pretty normal. I mean, the the Europeans are all sort of getting on with life. And yes, there are still restrictions. You know, you still got to wear masks everywhere. And, and um, you know, right now this weekend is the Festa Mayor in Spain. So it's like the national holiday that each sort of town organises. And they're still having sort of concerts and things, just not... Uh, not as much and not as long into the evening, which is kind of nice for us because we can still get a good night's sleep. Um, but there are certain <laughs> certain things in place around that. And for us, our competitions are, you know, close to the public. We have to wear masks everywhere. We have to socially distance. We have to get a PCR test um, before every competition. Um, so it, there are still some restrictions, but it's generally back to normal in a lot of ways, um, which is, is amazing to be able to still train and compete. But I do feel awful and, and, and a bit guilty being here when everyone back home is locked down. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely hoping and fingers crossed that, that you all get out of lockdown soon. Yeah, there's nothing for you to feel guilty about far out. Yeah, it's just it's the, the life we're living at the moment. As I said, there's so much to talk to you about, Jess, um, and there was real excitement in the house that you're coming on the show. We saw your emotions, and we'll get in detail to what happened in Tokyo, but we saw your emotions after you won a bronze medal, which is an outstanding achievement, and then we saw your emotions when you won a gold medal, which is obviously the two further steps up the rung. After all you've been through, and you've been doing this for a long time for someone of 10 years still, is life different as a gold medalist? Do you go to sleep more satisfied? Do you, do you have more of a spring in your step, or is it just another step along the road on the journey? I think it's a it's a mixture of both. I mean, it's definitely another step along the journey. My my journey doesn't stop here. Um, I think I'm still very much motivated and excited to keep going, especially with Paris Olympics only being three years away and with my season sort of carrying on now with World Cups next week and the World Champs. It's sort of a strange, strange year to kind of get back into it and, and not be home and celebrating with everyone. So, um, but in saying that, you know, I do feel like I've ticked something off um, that I've been working towards for a very long time. So there is that immense satisfaction of all that hard work, all those people who have helped and supported me and, and you know, for my whole team to have achieved this. Um, it's it's amazing to to share that with them. And, and I've been able to see some family in Europe. So to, to sort of show my grandma and my grandpa my Olympic gold medal, it was just an amazing moment that really helped, made it sink in. Tell me about that. You pull out the gold medal for your for your grandparents. Where were you? What what was the reaction? That's that's a wonderful wonderful moment. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, my grandma in she's in Marseille. Um, my mum's mum, so she is the most stressed and anxious spectator. So she couldn't watch any of my races. She spent the whole day gardening because she she was too stressed. Wow. Um, and even just rewatching my race, she was in tears and just <laughs> hyperventilating. <laughs> so, uh, you know, even though she knew what the result was. So when I showed her the medal, you know, she was just so proud and so excited, especially because 
you know, my, my papi, my, my, her husband passed away uh, a few years ago and he was just the biggest fan of canoe slalom and of my career and my biggest supporter. And so she knew how much this would have meant to him as well. And, and the first thing I said to her, cause she grabbed it and she looked at it and she was about to kiss it. And I was like, do not kiss the metal. It's probably full of, you know, germs <laughs> now that this many people have touched it. Um, so we're still very much like COVID. <laughs> it's a COVID cluster, this metal, now that so many people have, you know, looked at it, held it. Um, but then, yeah, a few weeks later, I saw my grandpa on my dad's side and, yeah, he was just so chuffed. He wanted to come to Tokyo. He's 90 next year and he was planning on getting to Tokyo for the Olympics, but obviously no spectators were allowed. So this was, yeah, very special for him as well. You talked about the Paris Olympics in some ways, a proud Australian that you are. Uh, it will be a home Olympics for you because you were born in France? Yes, I was born in Marseille in the south. My mum is French and she represented France at the Olympics in 96 and 92. Crucial, le jour France J, bien voilà. Une nouvelle médaille pour France. elle dans, ce, dans cette compétition olympique. Et notre petite Française, Marianne Fox, la voilà enfin médaillée. Um, so I was born there and we moved to Australia when I was about three, four years old and they, my parents got jobs coaching the Australian canoe slalom team and it was just meant to be a couple of years in Australia and then back to Europe we would go and in the end we loved it so much and sort of their jobs got renewed and we started school and we just kind of settled in and, and loved life in Australia. So we ended up here. So, yeah, I guess it, I still have roots in France and I, we go back every year and now we've got competitions there many, most, most years. So uh, I do feel quite at home in France as well. So do you have early memories of being a youngster in, was it in Marseille itself? Yeah, yeah, in Marseille. Yeah, I have early memories of going to the kayak club where mum was training for the Atlanta Olympics. Um, I have memories of my grandpa, who was the uh, president of the kayak club in Marseille, you know, getting me to, to get on the water and then eventually go on training camps with the clubs and I was a bit older. Um, so, yeah, and obviously my whole family is still there. So we always try and, and get back there and see everyone. And your father also, and we'll get to his commentary, <laughs> I can't watch my kids play 10-year-old sport. How a father <laughs> commentates on his daughter at an Olympics, we will get to. But he, he has a rich history in this sport as well. Yeah, definitely. He was five times world champion. But now we switch to canoeing and action from the World Slalom Championships currently taking place in Augsburg, West Germany, on the course especially built for the 1972 Munich Olympics. British attention was focused on our reigning world champions, Richard Fox, looking for his third successive title. And Liz Sharman and competed at the Barcelona Olympics, where unfortunately he touched a gate and went uh, from first place to fourth place. So it was it was quite quite tough for him. But he that was sort of the only Olympic Games he was able to compete in because prior to that, canoe slalom wasn't in, in the Olympics. Um, so 92, it came back in after 1972. So there was a 20-year gap. Um, but yeah, he was he was an amazing competitor and and still talked about today as one of the legends of our sport. And eventually went on to coach and um, yeah was was influential in the Australian sporting landscape. But also at the international level of the canoe slalom, um, he was yeah he was he was quite influential and uh, he still is today. Yeah, uh, we've got to talk about his commentary because, as I said, I, I don't know how I don't know how we did that. Now, you mentioned at the start the kids. Uh, Normie comes at the end, but you uh, I get the question now from the big penguin, <laughs> who is nine, and uh, alongside myself and my daughter and my wife. And I hope you get 
a lot of these stories when you get home with people coming up to you till it drives you to distraction saying, oh, I was doing such and such when I was watching you competing because it, it, it had such an impact, the Olympics here, Jess, because none of us could leave home. So yeah. it, it brought so much joy and happiness. So this is his question. He was absolutely pumped that you were on. This is what you get from him. Hey, Jess, big panel here. First off, great job on winning the Canoe Salem in the Olympics. It was amazing. We were all jumping around in our lounge room. But what I want to know was how old were you when you started Canoe Salem? Because I hadn't even heard of it before the Olympics. <laughs> Great question. And, yes, I had so many messages of people jumping up and down in living rooms and Good. sending me videos. Like, it's the best. I, I, I have loved reading those. But, yeah, I look forward to hearing about it when I'm home. Um, so to answer the question, I think... Uh, for me, I first sat in a kayak when I was six months old with my parents for a huh. media op. <laughs> but um, I started probably more seriously when I was 11. Uh, I was previously doing swimming and, and gymnastics and I broke my arm doing some tumbling exercises and some trampoline work. And my physio, who is still my physio today, actually, Tony, he recommended paddling when I got my cast off to sort of... Um, rehab the arm and get some strength back. And so I was 11 going on 12 and it was sort of the perfect age to get onto the Whitewater Rapids when I was strong enough and I made some friends. And so it was just a, a, the perfect timing to to get into the sport and, and discover how exciting it was on the Whitewater because prior to that, I'd only been on the Flatwater and that was kind of a bit boring to me and I didn't really enjoy doing that with my parents. So yeah, for me, 11, 12 was that, that age when I really got into it. No time for modesty now. Obviously, you've got lineage in the sport, but were you naturally talented from the start? Were you exceptional from the start or you're a hard worker or where would you have placed yourself in in those you were competing against in those very early days, Jess? I think mum and dad both sort of say that I was always a really sporty kid and, and we we did many sports growing up, my sister and I, and I think that I was always super competitive and quite naturally fit and, and um, knew how to sort of push myself and, and race, I guess. So when I started paddling, I learned the basic technique early on from my parents, which is really important to have that stroke efficiency to be able to go fast. And so I think that really helped me. But I did have a bit of both, you know, I had that, that sort of natural feel for the water and that that natural sort of athletic ability um, and then really loved racing and loved pushing myself. So when I did have to train hard, I think all those years of swimming training really helped and gymnastics helped draw that into me. I, I knew how to push myself and, and how to um, yeah give it everything in a competition. So I think I was a bit of both. And what grabbed you about it? What made you pursue it with such ferocity that, that it's been your life? For me, it was the whitewater that I loved that you know, that adrenaline rush when you're when you're young to sort of overcome these fears of falling in and swimming and, and you know, just the progression really excited me and, and kept me hooked. And then it was the competition. I just loved racing and, and I had some early success, you know, at nationals and age nationals and things like that. And my first sort of international race was the Youth Olympic Gate, no, the Youth Olympic Festival in 2009. And I won that competition and I was... Um, 15 and it was probably what lit a spark in me as well. I was sort of thinking, okay, on an international level, I could maybe be good. Let's see how I go on the junior world championships. 
Hi and welcome. Uh, we are here overlooking beautiful Penrith in Sydney here in Australia and I'm joined by Jessica Fox, world junior champion in C1 and K1 and also third and fifth in the world championships last year in Totson. So welcome Jessica. And uh, um, Yeah, I think the the fact that it's always different, you know, there's there's always something to learn on the water has, has kept me going for so long as well in that longevity. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's the, the fact that I'm always happy and excited to go training and I love to race. And I really want to talk to you the specifics about technically what's required in your sport, but it's a difficult one for parents, the, how much you push your child, do you not push your child, do you step back, do you leave it up to them? Your mum and dad obviously both elite in this sport that you're starting to get a foothold in. How did they deal with it and how did they work with you? Did they push? Did they not push? Did they step right back? What was their approach? Yeah, it's a great question and I think something that a lot of parents probably struggle with and and I'm not 100% sure what my parents take on it. You'd have to probably ask them, but I know from my perspective they I felt like they pushed us when we were younger, you know, sort of five to eight years old to to get paddling, but more so so that it could be a family activity that we did together. And I'm so glad that they did because, um, you know, we've been able to share amazing moments on the water together when we go on holidays, we take the kayaks and we go on a lake, um, you know, or, or, or on the beach. Um, so they really just wanted that for the basic sort of safety and confidence to be able to do an activity together. And then in terms of the competition, I think, um, I, I don't think they ever pushed me. I think they, they knew that I was quite naturally competitive and, and wanted to compete, but they they were conscious that, you know, they were national coaches, so there was a conflict of interest. They, they had to make sure that I was never in the middle and, and you know, they couldn't be coaching me on the side um, or, you know, they had their jobs mm. with the team. So it was, wasn't until I sort of made the team myself that I integrated the, the training squad. Um, and that's where I think mum started to push me more as a, as a, as an athlete to just bring the best all the time and, and have a certain level of excellence for training every day. So I never felt like I was pushed to, to be the best from them. It came from me, but once I saw that I was driven, they, they wanted to do everything they could to, to support that and help me. True story. Were you, as well as being an athletic guru, an academic wizard? <laughs> is is the score of 99.1 in your ATAR a true story? Because I read that and I was like, surely she can't be that clever as well as that talented physically. <laughs> no, that is true. Um, I I don't know if I was that clever or if I got a little bit lucky and, and picked the right subjects and just pulled it off at the, at the last 99. minute with my <laughs> uh, you, <laughs> no, you, yeah. you can't say 99.1 is lucky, Jess. 99.1, it's a serious number. No, it is. And I definitely worked very hard um, throughout my high school high school career, I would say. And I was lucky that I had a lot of great teachers, really supportive teachers at Blackson High who um, knew that I was an athlete and, and wanted to be competing overseas and missing school, but also that I was really motivated to to work hard and, and I think also driven to, you know, get the work from them. And and back then we didn't have that much online. You know, I was contacting them on email and saying, can you please Mm. scan me the the documents I need for this assignment and that sort of thing. So I was really driven and and they saw that and wanted to help me. So I remember in 2010 competing at the world championships um, and 
I think I was in year 11 at that stage and I came fifth. And that was when I sort of started to believe that I could maybe qualify for the London Olympics two years later. So I remember coming home that year and wrote on a piece of paper, um, London 2012 Olympic Games, and then underneath it, 97.5 ATAR. And I stuck that up on my wall and it was sort of my like visual reminder of what I was doing for that next year and what my goals were. And I don't know why it was 97.5. It was just a really high number. I think, you know, anything in the 90s would have been amazing. Um, but it's sort of what I saw every day when I woke up to go training before school or when I had to hand in an assignment and stay up a bit late. So really learning that time management, learning that goal setting um, and being motivated to to work hard for it. I think I was rewarded at the end with, with both of those dream goals in a way. So were you literally in airports doing assignments type of material? Yeah, I mean, I was, I think in year 12, I missed maybe six weeks of school. Um, but the year before that, in year 11, I think I missed three months of school. So I was, yeah, on tour huh. in my hotel room. I'd be doing my assignments. I'd have to say no to a lot of things. You know, my teammates might be going out t- sightseeing or or doing some fun touristy things on days off. And I'd sort of be in my hotel just tapping away on my computer. So yeah, there were definitely some um, sacrifices and hard moments and I'm still studying now. So I think I'm kind of used to it now to to be having both of those and balancing both. But uh, yeah, there were a lot of late assignments too. You know, I wasn't, <laughs> I definitely wasn't perfect, but <laughs> I learned that, you know, I'd have to put my sport aside for, you know, maybe a week or two and, and still go training because for me it was important to have that mental clarity and that physical movement to, to keep me feeling good and, and be able to study. But I knew that, okay, well, my major competitions are here, so I need to make sure I'm prepared in my study before that so I'm not too stressed out beforehand. So I think, yeah, I learned a lot of valuable skills and had, yeah, great support from teachers and, and my parents too. What are you studying at the moment? I'm doing an MBA at the moment through Griffith Uni. Um, And in saying that, I literally just said I had to plan everything and whatever, and I'm so last minute with my assignment at the moment. After this, I'll be cramming for the rest of the day to to hand it in on time. (laughs) So I'm getting in the way of your MBA. We need to cut. The MBA is more important than a podcast. We need to wind this up then. No, no, we're good. We're good. It's it's a form of procrastination. It's great. It's productive. (laughs) More of Jess shortly. Next up on the Howie Games. Now, this man, he is a massive, massive personality. I can't wait for you to hear him. He is an entertainer, a massive figure in the boxing caper who has been the commentary voice of the biggest fights of the last 50 years, Colonel Bob Sheridan. Yep, Colonel Bob. From Tyson in his heyday, Mayweather, Pacquiao, Bob's got cracking stories about them all. This is a man, check this out, that broadcast the most famous fight of all time, Ali versus Frazier, the rumble in the jungle from Zaire to an audience of one billion people. Here's how I open the fight. From President Mobutu Stadium in Kinshasa, Zaire, Don King Productions presents the heavyweight championship of the world, Muhammad Ali versus the champion, George Foreman. What a fight this will be from the deepest, darkest part of Africa. Hello again, everybody. I'm the Colonel Bob Sheridan, and welcome to... President Mobutu Stadium, and we welcome, of course, Don King, and of course, President Mobutu himself. Let's get ready to go. My co-commentator is David Frost. We've got Jim Brown, the football player, and we've got James Brown, the godfather of soul, working with us as well. So let's get started, and here's the entrance, and in comes 
Here comes Muhammad Ali, and they're going crazy here. And that's how he's got to open it up. So, so, that, that's outstanding. So James Brown, the godfather of soul, was there oh, as yeah, well. Oh, you don't have to worry about James Brown because he was blasted on uh, – uh, James was blasted on, I think, Quaaludes, that end, because he says to me at one stage, <laughs> okay. he says okay. to me, he says, man, Bob, he says, seems like you calling them punching before that happened. <laughs> so they shut down his microphone. And that, was, that was the end of him. Even if you have zero interest in boxing, you do not want to miss Colonel Bob. Trust me. Let's get back to Jess. Okay, so what is the... What are the keys to being a successful kayaker? Like, what do you need to do? Like, because when you watch it as a as a punter on telly, it happens quickly, and it's whip, whip, whip through the gates, and you're at, at the at the end, the finish line. What's required? But it's going to be tight. As she comes so to the finish line, it is going to be the race lead. Surely, Jessica Fox of Australia does find that time. So I think you need uh, a. I mean, a strong fitness and strength base and, and very good core stability. We do a lot of that in the gym. Um, but then you need really good technique and to be able to manoeuvre your kayak or canoe through the gates with um, ease by using the water. So you have to be able to read the water and understand how to use it for, you know, to maximise your speed and to save your energy, basically. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's a combination of a, of a lot of things, you know, the, the physical, the technical, and then mentally you have to be able to stay focused for, you know, 100 seconds of a race um, to be able to get through each gate, stay present um, so that you're not, you know, focusing on any mistakes that you've made or dwelling on anything negative and you're really just staying in the moment on what's important now, getting through each gate. You've done some fantastic work with Red Bull and obviously a great partner to have. We've had quite a few Red Bull athletes um, on the show and their video content is always outstanding. So I was watching some of some of that, of your training. Tell me about the variety of your training because, you know, I saw you doing the almost the Formula One where you're hitting buttons or changing colours with those reflexes and then you you were on your, your Swiss ball um, for your core with a with a – a piece of dowel across your shoulders, and I thought, gee, there's, there's a tremendous variety of training, but really specific to what you do. Yeah, I think we're always trying to, you know, think outside the box and and push push the boundaries in in what's um, what's possible and what's going to help me get that one percent better. So obviously, we do the those sort of basic strength movements in the gym, you know, your pull-ups, your bench press, your bench pull and your deadlifts. But then we add in a lot of core stability work like that Swiss ball exercise, but then also external things that might be distractions. So I think what you're referring to is one of the sessions I did with Nam Baldwin where, you know, he might have been throwing tennis balls at me or, um, you know, testing my reflexes on the, I think it's called the smart fit. We're going to start with a ski erg. Let's get a bit loaded there, like a start of the race. Good, you're up this far end, up this far end. You're just going to be pulling this. You got it, let's go. It's mimicking you in the kayak. There's a lot of load going through your rear chain and arms. Cool, straight onto the BOSU. This is you under after a bit more load going into your kayak. Nice, that's it. We're just mimicking what happens when you go down through the rapids is you have to dodge things effectively. And, and it just sort of makes you work under pressure and try and stay focused 
to deliver, you know, what you're capable of and keep your form and technique and not get overwhelmed by any emotions or frustrations and distractions. So that's exactly what I need on the water. So anything I do outside, I try and help relate it back to what I need in those 100 seconds on the whitewater. And on the whitewater, you need to be adaptable and you need to sort of react to the water, to the conditions. Sometimes it's windy. Sometimes, you know, there are a lot of distractions. It's never a stable environment and it's never the same each race. So testing that um, in the gym or, or through those other exercises and working with breath work, we sort of really work on all those elements to, to make sure we, we pull it back to the water as well. What's the breath work? So the breath work is more just around like if if at training, um, you know, we're doing uh, some efforts and you're getting tired, you're getting frustrated, you're getting upset because it's not going how you want it to go, um, refocusing on the breath to sort of bring you back into the training session and not waste any of that session and sort of turn it around is really important. So what I'd love you to do is just, just gently close your eyes. Just for a moment, we're just going to focus on that coolness of the air coming in through your nose as you breathe in. You're in the moment. You go and sit on the BOSU. You got the stick, that's your paddle. You're facing me, tennis balls start coming in. You're dodging, you're weaving, you can feel your body move effectively. It's just like everything's in slow motion just like the gates and the rapids will be fast coming towards you. You can see them quickly, you can move effectively. And you just love this intensity because you've got that calmness underneath it. And then also in competition, using breath work to get ready and into that sort of um, optimal state for performance is, is important. So before my Olympic races, for example, I was sitting in the start and I was just focusing on my breath, which is probably what people saw was this real steely, um, yes. steely you know, look on my face. Um, but for me, it was, you know, focusing on my eyes, focusing on my breath and, and being tall to get me into that race mode. And when you're on the water... Where, where's the power coming from? Is it coming from like your, your glutes and your bum or is it coming from your core or your arms and your shoulders? I'm sure it's a combination of most, but when you're trying to generate speed, where's that power coming from? Yeah, it, it sort of depends on the event. So for the kayak, I'm in a seated position with my legs out in front and my feet are on, um, we call them foot plates, foot pegs. And so there's just this yep. sort of this metal thing that we push on. And that's important because it helps the transmission from your stroke that you put in, which you then use your, your rotation. So your back and your core to pull through and pushing on your legs. So using your, your, your glutes. So you, you're getting as much transmission as you can. Um, and then in the C1, there is still that rotation, but I'm in a kneeling position and I'm strapped in. So the transmission's a little bit different and it's more about sort of that movement of the upper body and the hips and staying strong in your core. Um, so, yeah, I think there's this really cool feeling that when you find the connection with the white water as well, with the current, you can just fly on the water and you feel super light and super strong and, and that's the sensation we're always looking for. And is there a point, like, if you watch the rowers, you can see a point where they've hit the wall, where where physically they are hurting. Does that happen in that 100 seconds? Um, it can. I, like it, it should. Technically, you should be, you know, 
exhausted at the end of a race. But I think because it's such a technical sport, you need to keep your posture and your form. Um, and sometimes there's a really hard, challenging move at the bottom of a course that you need to get to. So if you're completely spent by the time you get there, the likelihood of you getting through those gate combinations might be might be slim. So I think um, mm. I'm sort of always racing at like an 88% capacity and then I save that, you know, 100% sprint at the end, you know, to just go for it once I'm through all the gates. But sometimes you find that you 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 actually use the water best when you're not trying as hard and when you're not sort of going as hard. But um, for me, it's always about keeping my posture and my form to be able to go faster. So I do get, you know, my heart rate soars and I do get those lactic arms and, and feel so tired in my core as well. But I think we train that so that we're able to keep our, our posture. So where does your heart rate get to on the closing stages of a run? Normally it's between like 185 and 195. Um, at the Olympics I was sitting in the start blocks and my heart rate was 152. <laughs> so Before you started? That was on day one. That was on wow. day one. So obviously I was feeling, I was definitely feeling the uh, <laughs> the stress of the games, but it got better throughout the competition luckily. And what's the hardest thing you do in training? Swimmers, again, you're from a swimming background, repeat efforts in the pool. Is it repeats on the water or is it things you're doing in the gym or on dry land where you think, oh, no, I've got this today? I think, the yeah, I, I don't love the gym. I do it because I know it's good for me and because it's going to help me on the water. I haven't really... Yeah, I, I see people in the gym and I'm like, why are you here if you're not training for the Olympics? <laughs> like, <laughs> the day I retire, I'm not sure I'll set foot back in a gym. But, um, yeah, for me it's probably the gym and, and the lactic sessions that I know are going to hurt. And But, you know, having done that swimming training when I was younger, I remember dragging my feet to the pool and mum being like, no, you need to do this session. You signed up for swimming clubs, so you know you're you're finishing the mm. term, and and you always felt really good after it, even though you hated it. You know, in the moment, you always felt so proud of yourself and so good after. So I kind of always hang on to that when, even you know, with the gym or with those lactic sessions on the water, I know that it's hard, but it's going to help me further down the track. So it's good for me. What's a lactic session on the water? I, I told you I'd have too many questions. Yeah, yeah no, you, it's good. Boy, you're crazy, but it, this is your world, as I say. We see you perform, but we don't really understand what goes into it because it's a sport that is unfamiliar to the majority of the population. So what, what is a lactic session? So there, there are a few different ones. Like if it's on the flat water, it's more of a hard physical slog. Um, it might be, you know, 30, on, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, repeated I don't know how many times until you want to vomit, um, or one-minute efforts, um, three-minute efforts around the, the – we've got like a set course and we'll do that six times. Um, and then on the whitewater, sometimes the hardest lactic sessions we do are full runs sessions. So we're actually doing a race course. On a normal race day, we'll do two runs um, and we'll have two hours or one hour between each run, whereas in a training session I might do 16 of them and I sort of got like, you know, three or four minutes between each run and it, and it's quite mentally taxing as well because I'm still trying to deliver high-quality technical work mm. and I think it's one of those sessions that has made me a really strong paddler because mum, who was also my coach, you know, I might get to run number 10 and 
I'm feeling exhausted and, um, you know, the last two runs weren't very good because I'm feeling tired. And she'll say, well, it's the Olympic final. You've got to deliver your best run now. And so you've got this mental battle going because you're tired, but you know you've got the technical ability to pull it off. And and so lifting that and, and pulling it out at the end of a session like that is is a really amazing moment. Even though I don't love the sessions, I feel really proud after those sessions. <laughs> really ignorant question. Two ignorant questions for you. Do you have to carry your kayak back up to the top each time or is there a conveyor belt or does someone do that for you or how does it get back up to the top? Depends where we are. So um, most artificial courses have a conveyor belt coming back up. So it's quite handy. You sort of, you finish your run, you paddle, paddle around, and then there's a a magic carpet that takes you to back to the top. Um, We have that in Penrith and where I am at the moment in Spain, we have that here as well. But certain courses don't, for example, in Prague, they, they have this long stretch of, you know, 200, 300 metres and you've got to just walk back up each time. But there are also certain courses that have these bollard configurations with ramps. So you can actually just pull yourself up the rapids to get back up to the top. Do you still fall out or fall off or tip? I still capsize. So that means you sort of your boat, you know, you, you end up underwater and you you need to do a kayak roll or canoe roll to get back up. Um, but that's one of the early skills that we learn when we when we start out. So I feel fairly confident to, to be able to do that whenever that happens. And it does when we're doing sort of exploratory technique training where you're trying different things and you're mm. taking risks, you know, you, you fall off the bike sometimes and you do that sort of thing. So it's the same, you fall in. But in terms of swimming, so popping the spray deck and getting out of my boat, I, it doesn't happen very often, um, mainly because I'm not doing really big white water than I'm you know, I'm, I'm doing mostly very controlled, you know, whitewater courses that, that I know that, um, you know, nothing dangerous is going to happen to me usually. So, yeah, luckily haven't had too many swims recently. <laughs> good, good. So let's talk about the Olympics. 2012, firstly, you go to London as an 18-year-old. Is everything just bigger and brighter and scarier and more overwhelming than you think? Or do you just cruise in and think, I'm 18, yep, this is just another competition? Well, this is a remarkable young talent, Jessica Fox of Australia. Her parents have uh, performed superbly in canoe slalom in the past. Her father was a five-time world champion. Mum was an Olympic medalist and a world champion as well. Uh, It was an amazing experience. I think I had the mentality of I'm soaking this all in and I'm taking it in and and, um, enjoying it. You know, I'm not I'm not going to get overwhelmed by this, but I competed in the 2010 Youth Olympic Games in Singapore. And I think that really helped me because it was, you know, a, a village environment. You had that sort of transport by bus to the venue and the security and you're part of a bigger Australian team. So I had that experience and it really helped me for London because I felt like I'd kind of been here before and it was just that it was just everything was bigger and brighter and and more exciting and more incredible. So for me, London was just an amazing experience. There were 15,000 people in the crowd at the Canoe Slalom venue and the vibe was just electric. And I I don't think I ever felt overwhelmed. I just felt so excited and proud to be there and, and just wanted to soak it all in. Did you compete against someone who had competed against your mum at those Olympics? Yeah, yeah. So um, Stepanka Hilgatova, she's a legend of our sport and she won the Olympic gold medal in 96 when my mum came third. La championne olympique 
du kayak monoplace dame. Stepanka Ilgertova, c'est un peu une surprise. Uh, and she also won in 2000 and she competed at five Olympic Games and was 44 years old uh, in London. Olympic champion and gold medalist representing the Czech Republic, Stepanka Hilgatova. So it was quite an, an amazing story actually because when I, um, she came fourth at those Olympic Games. So it was just, she was just phenomenal, like to still be there at that level um, after five games. And, and for her, I think it was quite funny because You know, it was full circle. Yeah. She competed against my mum and now she was competing against me. So, yeah, it was a very cool experience. Just 18 years of old age and she's already a second under the time set by Helga Tova. And you were able to turn the tables for your family, obviously a silver medal at your, <laughs> at your first Olympics. You relegated her down to fourth, as you said. Was it everything you hoped for, a silver medal? Were you 18 and this is blowing me away and I couldn't be happier with what I've achieved? Well, third down this course, but she could be setting a time which is good enough for a medal. Who knows what colour? But Jessica Fox, a real championship performer in the past, and she's done it again by a big margin. 106.51. Superb by the young Australian. I was so proud of that performance. I think, you know, if I'd finished fifth or eighth, With that race, I would have been so stoked. You know, it was it was one of those moments for me that I'd put down the run that I was capable of. Jessica Fox, just 18 years old, from Australia, gets the silver, and Melen Chiro of Spain wins the bronze. Well, what a celebration there is. The Australian flag on the back of young Jessica. And the name of Fox lives on in championship winning history in canoe slalom. It was 0.6 of a second from the gold medal, which still blows my mind. And <laughs> actually I remember the media saying, you know, oh, you you were so close to the gold, you must be so frustrated or upset. And I was like, no way, I've just won an Olympic silver medal. Like that for me was a dream come true in that moment for sure. And then you flip forward four more years of hard work and it starts to become, you win your first world title in 2013, your first individual yeah. world championship? Yeah, so the, the year after, I I, um, I remember having these funny emotions of now I need to prove myself and, and show that it wasn't a fluke that I won an Olympic medal. Um, but I was competing in two events, so the kayak event, which I raced at the Olympics in London and Rio, and also the canoe event, um, which was added to the program in Tokyo. And I won my first world title in the canoe event in, in Prague in the Czech Republic. And yeah, it was an amazing feeling to, to pull that off and, and to take the win there. And, and the next year to actually win both the kayak and the canoe and become the first woman to do that. So um, yeah, I think from London, it really spurred me on that I was capable of competing with the best in the world and, and, and the big dogs, you know, the older women, even if they were 10 years or 15 years older than me, I could, I could challenge them. So it really kept me motivated and excited. That is the end of Jess Fox Part A. Keep paddling towards Part B. Listener. Imagine a world where animals and humans coexist in harmony, where wild animals thrive, habitats are protected, and marginalized communities are empowered. 
At International Animal Rescue, this is our vision. Our holistic, community-led projects not only rescue animals, but also protect and replenish precious habitats, creating a better future for us all. But we can't do this without you. Show your support now and help keep the wild, wild. Visit internationalanimalrescue.org.